Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast family. This week's show is brought to you by The View. Well, it's a whole new year, but we're sticking by our stale talking points. Thank you very much. Well, big tech struck again this week, but this time there was a happy ending to the story. A new children's book company called Heroes of Liberty launched in November, hoping to bring biographies of figures like Ronald Reagan and Amy Coney Barrett to families across the globe. And then Facebook did what it increasingly does of late. It picked sides in the culture wars. The social media giant blocked Heroes of Liberty from using its massive ad platform, now, the company invested heavily in Facebook advertising. It knew how critical that can be to reaching potential audiences. Facebook targeting is really, really effective and powerful. Well, nothing doing. Facebook blocked the company's ad network unexpectedly. When they appealed the decision, Facebook circled back and permanently blocked them, citing their disruptive ads as the reason why. Here's some of the ad company from those disruptive ads in question. Christmas is here, and it's the perfect time to celebrate with your children. Celebrate family, celebrate freedom, celebrate America. That's disgusting, right? Good for Facebook for blocking that. Well, guess what happened next? Prominent conservatives like Megyn Kelly, Mary Catherine Hamm, and Britt Hume complained pretty loudly on Twitter. Essentially, they said, how dare you? How dare you? And after a steady barrage of news articles and all those how dare yous, Facebook had a change of heart. Oopsies, just a mistake. Yeah, just a mistake that goes in line with every other mistake made by social media giants in the last two, three, four years. It's always in one direction. It's always against right-leaning voices. But it won't happen again. There's no doubt about that. Now, here's why the story matters beyond that happy ending. Big tech will do whatever it can to block right-leaning voices. It's very clear at this point. They have no shame. None. Zero. But... If enough conservatives rage against them, chances are they're going to buckle. And By the way, our liberal friends, you can rage too. This is not a good thing, and they will circle back and get you too at some point. So rage now or face the consequences later. You know, something similar happened a little while ago with Amazon. They tried to block a documentary called What Killed Michael Brown. It's really good. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it from director Eli Steele. It takes, I guess you could say, a right-leaning look at the Ferguson and Berlio from a few years back. It's smart. It's interesting. It's thought-provoking. And it actually includes other sides 
in this particular debate. Now, that one got blocked as well. What happened? They said it didn't meet, Amazon said it didn't meet their quality criteria. Now, <laughs> Amazon, God bless them, they serve up a lot of direct on that platform, and that's okay. We want direct, we want good movies, we want mediocre movies, no problem there. But using that didn't meet our quality criteria argument is absurd, in part because there's a lot of direct on there, like I said, but also this is a very well-crafted movie. Eli Steele is a talented filmmaker, and that using that kind of rationale is absurd. Now, again, there was some media attention paid to this situation, and Amazon buckled, just like Facebook just did. So what's the lesson here? What's sort of the takeaway about this whole situation? Well, it's easy. You fight back. You fight back hard. You don't take these cancellations lightly. You don't kind of shrug and say, well, it's not my documentary. It's not my book company. The more of these that slip through the cracks, the more we'll see, and the more emboldened big tech will be to cancel voices. The dirty little secret here is that American people have the power to affect change and to right wrongs. We just have to use it or else. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Toto's take this week is unhinged. Russell Crowe plays an ordinary guy who's just had enough of everything. Enter a single mom who just so happens to get stuck near him in a traffic dispute. Boy, does she live to regret that. Now, Unhinged is mean and nasty. There's some tough stuff here, so if you kind of are not that kind of moviegoer, I would avoid it. But if you're amenable to it, definitely check it out. The movie really does tap into our cultural rage. And, you know, it's funny, this isn't Crow at his Oscar-worthy best, but he knows exactly what to do with this kind of material. I think it's a sign of a great actor. You kind of work with what you're trying to do with the genre in question. He's not embarrassed to be here. He's really all in. He's also huge here. It looks like he's gained some weight either for the role or maybe just off screen, but it's how he uses that bulk on screen to scare everyone. He scared me, that's for sure. It was interesting because Unhinged dropped, I think, at the start or near the start of the pandemic, and it, I have to say, it's kind of scratched a certain itch. We all felt that rage at current events, at people who drive us nuts, just, just that malaise that was going on at the time, and I'm afraid to say that itch is still here pandemic goes on. We're still frustrated by what's going on in the culture. And if you're an Amazon Prime viewer, you can get that itch scratched by watching Unhinged right now. You'd think a half-Persian stand-up comedian would lean into that heritage, both for laughs, of course, and also maybe to score some points in the identity politics scorecard. Well, in the case of Kayvon, it's yes and no. He did start his career kind of exploring his heritage on stage. Can't blame him for that. But he had little interest in playing the victimhood card. Kayvon leans to the right, and he'd rather focus on the funny, thank you. He does just that on comedy stages. He's got his own podcast, The Right Show. And now he's starring in a sweet new rom-com called Funny Thing About Love. 
He starts as a successful stand-up comic, there you go, hoping to rekindle his uh, passion with an old flame, but she's got a new beau who's standing in the way. The comedian opened up about how he got that really plum gig, why he doesn't get political on stage like you might expect, and much more in our conversation. I have to give some credit to my wife. She introduced him to Kayvon, I guess it was last year. She had seen some of his work on Dry Comedy Bar, and she said, check this guy out, he's pretty funny. Well, once again, my wife was right, and I hope you'll enjoy my chat with a very funny fellow, Kayvon. Kayvon, thanks for joining the show. Now, your new movie, Funny Thing About Love, is connecting with audiences. I checked out the Rotten Tomatoes audience score off the charts. You said a little while ago it was made the top five new release chart as well online. And it's squeaky clean. It's obviously an enjoyable film, too, but I, I think that plays a part in this. Well, t- talk a little bit about that element of the film and that it's a movie you can watch with your whole family. Well, there aren't too many movies the whole family can watch together. And um, it, it, it's been just a privilege to be a part of this cast and the writer who that was his whole goal. And I think he knocked it out of the park. I went to the movie premiere and there were people with their grandchildren and grandma in the crowd. And they're all elbowing each other, laughing at, <laughs> at various parts. That was a real treat. Nice. Now, the way you landed this particular role, which is a big role, uh, share that story. Because I, I, I think sometimes we you know, we kind of dismiss the work we do in different media and how it can really have a big impact in our careers. And I think it's a good story and maybe maybe inspirational in a way. It was interesting that I've been living in Hollywood for 15 years, taking the acting classes, auditioning uh, left and right. And then when the pandemic hit, I said, all right, I'm going to go move in with my brother and help him with his business. Obviously, entertainment is a sinking ship. (laughs) And that's when uh, an email came across my desk saying, would you like to star uh, in an upcoming movie? My first thought was, this is one of my friends or my enemies pranking me. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, sure enough, uh, the more I did research, and I was probably rude the first two or three. I was like, which Nigerian prince is trying to get me to give him (laughs) my bank account. But uh, no, I was probably rude the first two or three email exchanges. But then as it started to uh, turn into something that was legitimate, I started, oh, nice to meet you. You turn on the charm a little (laughs) bit going, geez, I almost talked myself out of this one. Now, uh, you're playing a comedian in the film. Obviously, there's a comfort level there. Does that make it an easier transition? You've done acting before, but is that uh, sort of a new comfort level? Or would you want to kind of play something that's really against type in the future? It's hard to say because I hadn't done comedy in over a year at that time on stage. And so I couldn't have felt like less of a comedian. <laughs> and they're like, here's your, you know, you're going to go on stage and rock. And uh, even in the filming of it, they did not put anyone within 35, 40 feet of the stage, but oh, wow. they shot over their heads so that when you watch it, you'll think it was a sold out theater. So I didn't have that vibe. And then to do a comedy show, like, okay, cut roll it back to that last joke just do the punchline and action you're like whoa so that was a that was a lot and plus it wasn't my material it those jokes were written for me from a page and i'm going all right how would i say this joke and uh get a laugh here interesting one of the things you did i think this is maybe how my wife first came into contact with your work was dry bar comedy it's been really successful and obviously you did a set for them that's another area where squeaky clean comedy, and I think, you know, I feel like when I was younger, maybe it was my perspective, but I thought, oh, you know, a clean comic isn't a funny comic, or there's, you know, they can't work dirty, so it's kind of a pass, or I'm not going to enjoy it. I think dry bar comedy, and obviously the work you do as well, is turning that on its head 
share a little bit about that perspective. Do you, do you sense there's a bigger audience there? And maybe maybe you and Drybar separately and together have just scratched the surface. I think so. Um, mainstream comedy used to be clean. And then Eddie Murphy would blow you <laughs> away because he would be dirty and you hadn't heard those thoughts and ideas. Well, now we've gone 180 degrees the other direction where every Netflix special is either political or filthy. And so when you go clean, you are the new counterculture. <laughs> yeah. And it's exciting to people. And Bill Cosby never said a bad word. Um, every single legendary comedian could go on Johnny Carson and go squeaky clean. Mm -hmm. So the idea that comedy has to be dirty to be cool or something, that's a newer idea. And it's, it's going away now. Drybar is exposing that. Yeah, I love the the counterculture aspect of it. It's interesting. Now, do you see a professional bump when you're on a dry bar platform, or how does that work exactly? Or is it more is it harder to kind of register a gauge? When I first did my dry bar, they were just emerging, so people were like, "No, just hold out, wait for the Netflix, you know, maybe." And but they weren't offering anything, and and dry bar was. And luckily, dry bar's fan base grew maybe ten times about the time mine was being released. And then since then, it's grown another, you know, 5X. So it's been really cool to grow with a new, that's what you want to do is just instead of trying to get with the, the already moving machine, just mm -hmm. get on one that's kind of respects you more and it's, it's growing with you. And then you have uh, some real loyalty there. Interesting. We recently talked to a comedian, Steve McGrew, who's very funny and he's very political on social media, but his act, I've seen him perform. It's very funny. It's not political at all. It's more observational. And I think there's maybe you kind of work in a similar vein where, you know, your podcast and some of your social media uh, kind of musings are more right of center. But I think your act is more sort of for everyone. Is, is that fair to say? And maybe talk about that sort of that choice to, to kind of perform in that fashion. Oh, that's a great observation. And I actually hung out with Steve McGrew in Vegas about two <laughs> weeks ago. And, and I had not, I've seen his social media, but I'd never seen his act. It was you know, the difference between cats and dogs and my wife tells me to wear this and I don't want it. I mean, it was right down the middle. Hilarious. I don't think he mentioned any politician once. Um, and I'm this, I'm similar in my show. I'll, I'll take a few little digs here and there, but, um, the main thing is each week, if you're doing a podcast or a, a material politics is like a ongoing soap opera that never ends. So it leads to material each and every week. Look at Trevor Noah. He does the show daily. But when you go on stage, if you're like, hey, remember that one time Kamala said this? Uh, first of all, um, most people don't remember that. <laughs> Second of all, you don't have a video screen behind you where you can show it the way you can on a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And third, now you're dealing with, well, does half the crowd believe you? Does half the crowd think this is funny? And does half the other half not even agree with your politics? So I don't really see a way to be super political during a comedy show and for it to work on a massive if you want to get to the level I would like to, which Sebastian Maniscalco is a kind of a guy, he, he, uh, he sells out arenas like Madison Square Garden, 20,000 seaters. Well, what, what world are you going to be in where those are all going to be, you know, <laughs> just believing one political uh, side of the fence, unless yeah. it's just all Trump rallies. That would be kind of cool, actually, the Trump rally comedian. You, you know, in a way, <laughs> sometimes you remind me of Sebastian. You have a real physicality to your performance, and I guess he's, he does that as well. You know, we talk a lot about cancel culture and the impact it has and what's going to happen next. And I, I want to get into that a little bit, but 
being right of center, and you're not a mean-spirited fellow, you just, you know, have an opinion and a perspective, does that impact you at all? Have, has that hurt you at all? Or have you been able to kind of kind of slide by and not, and not be impacted by that? Uh, after the show, um, because people have followed my online stuff, the handshakes are stronger and longer. I mean, people, <laughs> people look me in the eye and be like, I just want to say you kept my wife and I, you know, laughing this whole thing. And I, wow. But then there's also been more aggressive, um, upset people mm-hmm. uh, that are like, I can't believe you did a joke about Dr. Fauci. What are you? You're just a comedian. What are you thinking? And so uh, it goes both ways, but I would say 95% success rate. So mm-hmm. I can handle a few of those barbs. It's actually funny after you've got like a hundred compliments to hear four people complain. It is odd that we're living in a time when certain subjects seem taboo, certain leaders, certain figures. I mean, Dr. Fauci is playing a massive role in our lives. And if you're able to tweak him or make fun of him or poke fun or even anything, it's something that would be fair game. You've been a comedian for a while. Do you think that audiences are getting thinner skinned of, of late or what's What's maybe behind this? Um, I think if you are a, a Trump supporter or a conservative or a moderate, you're used to hearing barbs and digs because you could not turn on Saturday Night Live or, as I like to say, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Corden, Jimmy Ellen, or Jimmy Oprah <laughs> without hearing uh, you know, people make fun of the guy you voted for. But on the left, they've lived in this protective bubble where if you go, hey, let's go, Brandon, they're like, excuse me, do you understand how hurtful that is if he is to hear that? You go, hey, come on, man. Like, they don't understand. They, they can't see it from, a, from maybe 20,000 feet perspective. I, I really do study, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but cancel culture and looking at the culture. And every time I think, oh, gosh, I think it's going away. I think it's waning. Here's a, here's a blow for free speech. And then it comes roaring back and someone gets canceled or something is equally silly. You know, we're in 2022 now. Do you think this will be a good year for free expression? Are you optimistic? Or do you think there are more hills to climb before we kind of get to that place where we can just kind of joke and laugh and, and be more free-spirited? I think it's just like a never-ending battle. It's like the gazelle and the, the lion or something. Like, we're always going to have to wake up and, and run, and they're always going to be pouncing. <laughs> we just got to just fight the fight every single day. Um, because large institutions are training this victim culture. And I'll tell you, my stand-up comedy shows, people know this. You go to stand-up comedy, you make fun of the Mexican guy in the front row and the black guy sitting in the back, and then you make fun of your family for being Persian, and everyone shares a laugh together and leaves. But if you were to explain that process to an HR manager at a corporation, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to all make fun of the Mexican and the Puerto Rican (laughs) and the black guy, then the Persian oh my goodness, she would start the lawsuits and sit everyone down and give you a nice, good week-long diversity training. Mm -hmm. Now, because you've been on stage for a while, how do you think your act is either improved, changed, evolved? I mean, I I think everyone is a work in progress, whether you're an accountant or a comedian. How do you think you've gotten sharper over the years? Well, when I first started stand-up, it was like, I mean, I can't even talk about those topics anymore because it's so trivial. It's like, you ever been to the club and you're trying to dance and the girl won't dance with you? And those jokes used to get big laughs. And first of all, I don't go to the club anymore. I'm not out there trying to dance. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so when I even start to tell the jokes, I don't know if I go dead behind the eyes or the crowd that's not buying it. It's just not appropriate anymore. I don't know. And, but then when I'm like, all right, let's talk about stuff we can all agree on. Like how much we hate Fauci. 
the crowd's like rah, like because it's topical it's right here it's mm -hmm. stuff we've all focused on and so um a comedian uh, their jokes are like tires you can't just say well these tires work i'll just ride on them forever you have to always update i think i speak with more conviction i think i have better stage presence and um i think i know i can read before i get on stage like when i'm writing a joke oh this is probably gonna work before it was i don't know let's just <laughs> go try it but now it's this will probably work and if not i know what i did wrong here let me tweak that part so it's much better uh, experience I think a comedian, in a, in a way, has a sense of the American public. You tour city to city. You're catching people when they're at their when their guards are down. At least, hopefully, I mean, hopefully they're there to laugh and not, you know, crawl, fold their arms in disbelief. What do you think is, is? Do you have a kind of a snapshot of America at this point in our culture that maybe an average person wouldn't get or understand or even acknowledge? I mean, any sort of sense of where we are? as as I think a so, body because i do comedy at like a wet like a pakistani wedding on one weekend and the next weekend i'm at the myrtle beach women's republican convention and then the next week i'm just in las vegas doing 14 shows for mainstream america so it's hard not to get a cross section mm -hmm. and comedians have two jobs one is figure out what's funny and then what you're allowed to talk about because if you're dressed like uh, you know, Larry the Cable Guy and you want to talk to everyone about politics, there's probably a disconnect there. And if you're dressed like Bill Maher and you want to talk about plumbing and how hard it is to catch an alligator, I mean, that could probably be pretty tough for him too. So um, that's the part is just matching what people perceive with what you are somewhat of an expert or at least have a funny take on mm -hmm. and, and lining those two things up. So, uh, But yeah, I because of the cross-training and the very different crowds I'm in front of every night, I do feel like I have a better finger on a pulse of, I may not be an expert of WeHo, California, but a, a comedian who only does WeHo could not do what I do, where you mm -hmm. go to Alabama and then to Manhattan and then to Vegas. Are you optimistic about sort of the the the, the people of America at this point? I mean, do you, do you sense that we're in a, maybe we're in a more a hopeful place or any sort of sense there? I think the um, the mainstream and the the silent majority of people love comedy. They all pull you aside and go, "I like that joke you did." And it's just weird. This loud minority of cancel people, um, people to pretend that they're offended, they hold so much weight where it feels like it's equal or even. But I don't go to any crowd and perform hesitantly because I feel like that cancel culture is there. There's only like four of them out of two hundred people. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Before we let you go, uh, let's kind of dust off your crystal ball. Are there any cultural trends you see either in entertainment or comedy or Hollywood? Uh, maybe more comedians fighting back against the woke mob. A anything that kind of comes to mind that you, you kind of sense as we're in the new year? Well, when I watch commercials and everything, there's a funny meme going around that said, um, rest in peace, straight white couples <laughs> and commercials, 1950 to 2020. <laughs> And uh, it's so funny, man. Like, I do watch, because I'm Persian. I've never been represented on TV. I've never had a president. You've never seen an Iranian president in America. But um, I do notice the people that have the power, which are the companies, are saying, if you're going to make a commercial, then we want 80% minorities in this commercial. And, uh, and so, hey, they're having a great heyday. I just hope they'll make Persians the next right. uh, <laughs> the next. Uh, beneficiary of all that but no it's um i think it's going to be more 
it's going to be troublesome more, I think. Um, Kamala Harris, uh, Joe Biden, they, they push things that are divisive. Like if there's a court case that's still pending, they'll weigh in and tell you that it was racism. Mm-hmm. whether it was or it wasn't. And then they, there's no retraction. You saw um, Jussie Smollett. And there's at least 20, I call them mainstream radical left. Because they're mainstream, like the radical right, they are like some guy with no teeth, you know, sitting on it. And no one's got it. He doesn't have his own show. He, a radical right person, um, a racist radical right. He, he, they're, they're not running for office. They're not winning anything. They're shunned, main, really. Yeah, mainstream radical left is Joe Biden saying <laughs> what happened to Jussie Smollett shows that we are a racist country and this needs to stop now. We should not stand for bigotry and racism. And then when you find out that the guy put himself up to this and hired two Nigerians to pretend they're white people wearing red hats and saying this is MAGA country. Um, this is a, I need Biden to go on and say, I am sorry that I thought the worst of America at first. And I'm very pleasantly surprised to see we don't live in a country where that happened, but they'll never do that. That's why I call them radical leftists who are mainstream. That's a very simple, straightforward point that would be beautifully received. I think at least on my end, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not a Biden voter, but it'd be wonderful to see that if someone being responsible and kind of backing up and saying, Hey, wait, I got it wrong. I think there's too little in our, in our conversation. Absolutely. Kevin, thank you so much for joining Right on Hollywood. You can see his new comedy, Funny Thing About Love, on most VOD platforms. Also check out his smart podcast, Right Show Podcast, wherever you download your favorite shows. And if you need more information, visit kvoncomedy.com. That's k-comedy. I'm sorry, k-vonkomedy.com, just to spell it out correctly, for everything in your pretty bustling career. I think you're not going to have too much time off in the near future, and we wish you a happy new year. That's right, and I want to give one free ticket to every listener that emails me. Just pick a city on my website, because uh, anyone who's a fan of you is a friend of my comedy as well. All right, that sounds excellent. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk again. All right, thank you. Take care. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thanks for listening to Ride on Hollywood this week. I've been getting some really kind feedback on social media, and I really appreciate it. And before I go, I had to say, my book is finally here, at least January 18th. It's close enough now, at long last. I've waited for this moment. It really is the perfect read for anyone who's sick of the woke scolds of cancel culture. Well, they're ruining everything. The book is called Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. And it breaks down exactly how cancel culture is crushing comedy, free speech, and so much more. Of course, this extends beyond Hollywood, comedy, entertainment, but that's what I focus on. And it really is penetrating the the situation, the culture, the business in a really foul way. Now, my book dedicates an entire chapter to Gina Carano's Disney debacle. 
and how she rose from the ashes thanks to the fine folks at Daily Wire. I love that chapter. I think it's really important for everyone to read. I hope that actually she reads it herself. You'll also learn about hostage apologies. You'll meet some comedians who are willing to strike a blow against the woke culture and for free speech. You'll also get a pretty chilling behind-the-scenes look at just how far Hollywood has fallen. I think that point's going to really scare some people. I hope you'll give Virtue Bombs a try. And, of course, if you do enjoy it or you think others might, tell a friend. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. May the new year treat you kindly, and let's do this all again next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.